That Old Testament lesson that we read here today um, ties in with what we're going to be talking about, which is really not from that chapter, but rather from uh, Numbers chapter 11. And uh, in, in uh, several of these stories about the Exodus, what we see are these challenges that the uh, people of Israel are facing and, and how they respond to those. This is their wilderness journey. And when we take a look at this, what we can do is learn from their wilderness journey about how to apply these things to our own wilderness journey. Because we're kind of in that, you know, where we each have this journey, and sometimes it can seem as though we're in the wilderness. Well, today what we do is we uh, meet up with these people several months in, okay? And uh, picture yourself like this, okay? Uh, you are following this guy that you just met a few months ago, okay? And yeah, a lot's happened, and, and now you are um, in the wilderness, and you are supposed to be trusting in this God that, that really you just met a few months ago. And here out in the wilderness, there's not a whole lot of landmarks, and you're getting a little concerned about this guy named Moses who's supposed to be leading your group, and you're wondering if maybe he shouldn't stop at the next oasis to uh, ask for some directions, because you seem to be wandering in circles out here. And you're getting a little bit concerned. But the worst thing of all is the food. I mean, when you are on a journey, you know, food is important. You know, you go to Alaska, you have salmon twice a day. I mean, that's great. Well, the Israelites didn't, they didn't have the opportunity to do that. Instead, what they had was this thing called manna. Now, you know, manna to this day, I mean, it, it stands as this symbol of godly provision, right? And, and... Uh, with, uh, with manna, though, think about it this way, that, that this was all they had to eat, okay? Now, if they didn't have this, they'd be starving to death because they didn't know how to provide for themselves out in the wilderness. So God provided for them, gave them this manna, which uh, was this stuff that was kind of like a, uh, um, something that could be used to make uh, cakes and, and, and things like that that would uh, appear with the, with the dew in the morning. They could go out and gather it. And, and gather it up and, and eat that. But it would be kind of like this. Even for those of us who enjoy eating breakfast cereal, this might get a little bit old because it would be a little bit like eating the same breakfast cereal morning, noon, and night. So that you're going through each day and, uh, you know, you're talking with your neighbor and you're saying, hey, what's on the menu for tonight? I don't know. Let me guess. Um, manna. Okay, and after a while, you're saying, come on, can't we have something else? And the people of Israel began to complain, and they began to grumble, and, and well, anyway, uh, Numbers 11 began to uh, record it this way. It says, the rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. Those were the days. But now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. You ever notice, I don't know, maybe this, this is, you know, part of God's mercy, that if you're in a bad situation and time has elapsed, that time has a way of eroding, you know, how bad that situation really was in your mind. Now, if you still remember it as a bad situation, it probably was a very bad situation. Or, or even for that matter, a situation which was okay might be inflated 
so that it appears as though it was better over time than it really was. So therefore, the miracles of the present, as in the case of the Israelites, have difficulty competing with this past. Now, in the case of the Israelites, you know, they are claiming to, <coughs> excuse me, to have eaten all of these things. They remember eating cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, garlic, you know, as though these things were common parts of their diet. But in reality, if you were to go back and research what it is that the Egyptian slaves actually ate, what they ate was not those things. No, what they ate were things that would be the product of wheat and barley, which would mean things like bread and beer, which would be enough for some people, but not for the Israelites. Okay, for them, they craved something more. They craved meat. In reality, what they identify here as their diet was really the Egyptians' diet, not the diet of the slaves. So they were forgetting about their slavery. They were forgetting about all of that that happened. They need a healthy reality check. You know, their, their complaining spirit and their out-of-control tongue has distorted their perception of what really is the truth. So now, you know, if we were to go back and we were to take a look at Exodus chapter 3, we can, you know, revisit a little bit about what was the truth for their situation. There it says this in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, where God says to Moses, I have indeed seen the misery, the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering, so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. But, Lord, they are not craving milk and honey. No, they are craving a different kind of food. As a matter of fact, Lord, they are not craving you, as hurtful as that may be. Instead, they are craving something different. You know, um, we need to be careful what it is that we crave. We need to be careful what it is that we ask for. We need to be careful when it comes to the power of the tongue. Because everybody, no matter who we are, we struggle at times over the power of the tongue and the things that uh, we can say, you know, and a complaining spirit and what that might do. In the book of James, chapter 3, James talks about the tongue as being this small thing which is like the rudder of a ship, where this small little rudder of a ship can... Uh, control this massive ship and send it in a particular direction, you know. And for us, you know, the tongue is a small thing, unless, of course, we happen to be a member of the rock group KISS. But otherwise, it is a small thing. And yet it can control great things in our lives. It can control all kinds of things in our lives and influence our quality of life and our peace and our relationships and things like that. So Proverbs says this in Proverbs 21, He who guards his mouth and his tongue keeps himself from calamity, but he who doesn't is in a world of hurt, is, in the, is the implication. All of us have spoken words at, a, at some time or another which have caused hurt, which have caused problems. Some of us, however, have perfect, perfected this far more so than others. Some are even addicted to negative talk. So that we've got uh, somebody like uh, Rabbi Joseph Telushkin, who is an author and a speaker. He goes out on a lecture tour, and oftentimes when he goes out on a lecture tour, he asks this question of his audience. He says, 
something like this. Can you, who here can go 24 hours without saying anything negative about someone or to someone? And invariably in his audiences, you know, a couple of people, a few people, small percentage of the people there will raise their hands and a whole host of people otherwise would, uh, would shout out and say, no way, you know, or laughter or whatever else. And so he'd respond with these words by saying this. He said, those who can't answer yes must recognize that you have a serious problem. If you can't go 24 hours without drinking liquor, you're addicted to alcohol. If you can't go 24 hours without smoking, you're addicted, you're addicted to nicotine. So if you can't go 24 hours without saying unkind words about others, then you've lost control over your tongue. Now, the Israelites have lost control over their tongue. They've forgotten the blessings of God. They've forgotten the miracles of God. They've forgotten really what is reality and the truth. They've forgotten all of that and replaced it with an out-of-control tongue. Now, here uh, we can see that there are costs to a complaining spirit to an out-of-control tongue. We can see, for example, that uh, there is personal cost. It can cost you your peace. Now, at first, you know, at first it can feel really good to, um, to vent, you know, to have that out-of-control tongue at first. Uh, but then you've got to deal with the residue that is left after venting, you know, the impact that that might make on other people. That, and and uh, you've got to clean off the residue off of your own discontented spirit. And sometimes, you know, it means kind of climbing up out of the gutter and, and, and you just feel like you've got to wash yourself and be made clean again. It costs you your peace. Secondly, it costs you the truth. Uh, a person who has a complaining spirit, a out-of-control tongue, has to tear down what is in order to inflate what might be. And in the process of doing that, we can miss the blessings that God has given to us. We can miss, you know, the miracles that God has given to us in our lives. Uh, we, it can cost us the truth, which means that we can wind up making bad decisions, having poor judgment, and wind up in a worse state than we were before, as the Israelites would be if, if uh, Moses and the Lord actually followed what they were saying and shipped them all back to Egypt where they can enjoy their cucumbers. You know, uh, there's also a relational cost, of course, where a person who uh, is doing a lot of complaining, out-of-control tongue, is likely to harm the other people in their life, you know, cause relational problems. In this case, we can see that it causes a, a rift between the people in Moses and between the people in God. So that, uh, you know, God, put yourself in God's shoes here, just, you know, just to have a little empathy for God. Here it is. God has gone out of his way to come to these people who didn't even know him, to deliver them from slavery in Egypt, to bring them through the Red Sea miraculously, to um, provide for them water out of a rock, to uh, defeat their Amalekites, okay, to do all of these things, and yet it still isn't enough. And they have this complaining spirit. Now, what would you do if you were in God's shoes? Would a little righteous anger be justified? Would uh, perhaps wiping them out perhaps be an option? Or giving them what they want might be an option. You know, even to the extent of sending them back to Egypt. But God doesn't do that, you know, uh, even though there are ramifications for an out-of-control tongue. 
There is also an organizational cost because this is a venture. This is, this is a group of people that are going here, and, and uh, groups uh, really function uh, oftentimes on momentum. Uh, I, I, uh, when I was in Denver, there was this uh, church that was in a neighboring town that if you were to look at it, you would say, rationally speaking, uh, you would say, this is a church that is doing everything wrong, and yet it was growing. How in the world can a church that's doing everything wrong, in other words, you know, they, they, they would have um, Sunday school at 8 o'clock in the morning, you know, things like that, where, you know, it just didn't make any sense what they were doing. Uh, and yet they were growing in spite of that. And, and what happened, the one thing that they, no, two things, excuse me, not three things that they had going for them would be timing, location, and momentum. You know, they were a brand new church fairly recently, so they didn't have, you know, history baggage, whatever, you know, and, and so people could join there. So the, the only thing they could have was positive momentum because they were new. And, and the positive momentum carried them. Momentum carries organizations, whether it's positive or negative, and complaining spirit can cause negative momentum. So that just as fast as, as uh, people want to join a winner, join a winning stock, for example, that's on the rise, people are talking positively about it, a new restaurant that, that might be creating a lot of buzz or whatever it might be, people want to join that. Just as fast as they join that thing because it's a winner, just that fast they can jump that ship because people begin to talk against it and, uh, with a complaining spirit. And Moses begins to hear the complaints from the tents. And he's the one who's invested in this venture, and he's the one who's given up his life for this venture, and he's the one who's given everything for this venture, and he sees this venture being, you know, flushed out into Lake Erie, and he's getting worried here. He's distressed, and it proves this one other fact about, about discontentment and uh, an out-of-control tongue is that it can be contagious because Moses then turns to God this way in uh, Numbers chapter 11. He says this, Why, God, have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their forefathers? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, Give us meat! I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, just put me to death right now. If I found favor in your eyes and did not let me face my own ruin. He doesn't want to see, you know, this thing that he's invested so much into die. You know, he's discouraged, and it seems like life is at an end. But the God we follow is the God of new life and resurrections. He's the God of, of beginnings. He's the God who leads through wildernesses to the promised land, the God who provides. But He's also the God who does allow us to learn a thing or two. And when we crave things that are not God, sometimes God does allow us to have what it is we crave, as He did with the Israelites. Numbers 11, Now a wind went out from the Lord, and drove quail in from the sea. It brought them down all around the camp to about three feet, three feet deep above the ground, as far as a day's walk in any direction. There was so much meat around this camp, it was incredible. They couldn't possibly eat it all. 
All that day and night and all the next day, the people went out and gathered quail. No one gathered less than ten homers. Then they spread them all out all around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth, and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people, and He struck them with a severe plague. This was rotten meat. Therefore, the place was named Kibroth Hatava, because there, there they buried the people who had craved other food. Be careful what you crave. Be careful what it is that your tongue says. The Lord might give it to you. He might give it to you and allow you to live with the results. So, what do we do, okay? Uh, people have got this issue with the tongue and, and complaining or the spirit, things like that. What do we do? How, what's the answer? What's the solution? The solution I'm going to propose is this. Instead of craving these other things, crave the Lord, okay? Crave the Lord. Now, it's not that there aren't certain things that we need to be discerning about, okay? Or do things about. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is trust the situation to the Lord and turn to Him. It's like this, okay? Now, in Scripture, it talks about a, uh, you know, a drink offering poured out before the Lord. And uh, so I'm going to do that right now, okay? Right here. All right, don't worry. I'm going to clean it up, okay? All right. But um, why? I mean, here it is. Why is there water on the floor? Why? Let me rephrase this. Why is there water on the floor? (laughs) Let's try it again. Okay. Why is there water on the floor? Because there's water in the bottle. Not Coca-Cola, not Kool-Aid, okay, not iced tea, thankfully, because all of that would be far harder to clean up. But it's water on the floor because there's water in the bottle. Jesus said this, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, when we see ourselves with an out-of-control tongue and uh, a complaining spirit, let that be a thermometer, barometer, odometer, you know, whatever, to be able to tell you what's going on with your heart. And when it does that, the answer is this. Tend to your heart as far as what is going on inside and crave Him, the living water, so that He is the one who will transform your tongue, okay? And through you, provide His refreshment to the people around you. 